glorious God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word that reveals to us, even as we read this morning, that you will raise up on the last day all who are given to you. And you will do so because you have fully satisfied the justice of God for your people. Because in you we can, are found holy and blameless. And so fix our eyes, even as we learned through uh, the testimony of Jason and what you've done in his life. Fix our eyes on those things that are of eternal value. Help us to be abounding in the work of the Lord. Because those are the things that we'll, we'll take from this life into the next Give us perspective, O Lord, that we might serve you faithfully and love one another sincerely because of the grace we've received. And now as we open your word together and we come to the book of Revelation and we consider this vision that you gave your Apostle John of this future for a particular people here, but indeed a future that awaits all of us, which is to be in your present, to be aware and experiencing the full glories of our salvation in Christ. And so will you open our eyes to understand these truths and encourage our hearts, again, that we might live confidently, courageously, and faithfully in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and for your eternal glory in him. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. We are going to uh, come back into this great chapter, which we began some weeks ago. Obviously, we won't get through everything this morning. And uh, since it has been a while, we do want to take a, a bit of time to remember where we've been. But at the very essence of it, the very heart of it, the very theme of it, as it were, is the great glory of the salvation, the great joy, the hope, the blessedness that awaits God's people once we leave this world into the next. And it is a, it is a vision that he gives to John, and it is uh, one that he gives to us through the Apostle John, uh, because we need to remember our end. We need to remember our future, because there is suffering in this world. Indeed, he's writing to a people who were called out of the great suffering that is to come upon the world, both from the hand of God and both from the kingdom of the Antichrist. And what enables God's people to suffer? What enables two women of the Covenanters to be drowned in the sea? What enables God's people to have been burned at the stake and to endure hardships and prison and the loss of family? What enables God's people to endure those things? And it is to understand that our end is so much greater. That what God has saved us to is far greater than anything that we could lose here. And indeed, that there is nothing that we could endure here that our Savior has not endured already far worse before us, as he's gone before us as the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and yet doing that for us and for our salvation. And so it is these wonderful texts such as we come to in Revelation chapter 7, that remind us of this hope and we ask God to open our eyes to see it, to understand it, that we could say with the Apostle Paul that we look at the things not which are seen visibly in this world alone, but the things which are unseen, the things which are 
promised, the things that can only be seen with eyes given to us by God, the eyes of faith, in which those things that are unseen and that are believed become real in our presence. You could say the substance of things hoped for. And so it is that that we ask God to do in our hearts, that we might have that same peace and that same confidence of faith, even as we saw in Jason's life. Well, I want to begin by reading the verses 9 through 17, this, uh, this entire section here. We've, and then we'll cover where we've been and take some of the first steps to where we're going. So beginning in verse 9, and I just want to remind you, this is the vision. This is uh, the second half of the vision that John has seen after uh, the vision of the seals that were broken by the risen Lord that were the beginning of the unleashing of the wrath of God, the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, the final week, the final seven years of God's purposes for this age when he brings it to an end. And they were seven seals that noted for us the rise of the Antichrist, though not yet fully in power, of the destruction that was going to come through war and all of the consequences of war and disease. He revealed to us the martyrs that are crying out for vindication, for justice, that were under the throne in heaven. He's revealed to us the terror that will strike the hearts of men as they realize their sufferings are actually from the hands of the sovereign Lord of creation. And then he brings us into this wonderful vision and after such destruction and judgment to the glories of God's salvation. And reminds us that among all of those who will perish, there are also those who will be saved. Through those who will be saved and come to be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. And he begins by showing the restraint of some angels as they are withholding judgment until an appointed time. And then he brings us into this glorious vision of 144,000 who are saved from the nation of Israel. And he lists out the tribes there. And then he comes into this section that we're going to consider again this morning, beginning in verse 9. So we'll read verse 9 through 17, and then we'll look at it more closely. After these things I looked. And behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all the tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in white robes, who are they and where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer nor thirst anymore. Nor will the sun beat down on them nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And will guide them to springs of the water of life. 
and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Go back up to verse 9. And let me just remind you of what we've covered several weeks ago, the scene of worship, the scene of worship. And, and the passage breaks down into two simple segments that we'll look at it. The scene of worship and the explanation of salvation. The scene of worship and the explanation of salvation. The first, the scene of worship in verses 9 through 12. And as already noted, this is a glorious and a welcome scene in light of all of the death and destruction of chapter 6. This is a, a vision and the beauty of the joy of salvation. And we are reminded in light of the fact that Scripture indicates that the vast majority of humanity will not experience the salvation of God. will be left to the consequences of the fall. Even of those who have some kind of religious association or religious commitment, Jesus says of them, the road is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. But the way is narrow that leads to life and few are those who find it. He's saying that to people excluding already all of the pagan idolaters, all of the rest of the Roman Empire, and all of the rest of the world who did not know God. That's of those who even claim to have some attachment to God. So scripture indicates that, and we certainly even get that indication as we're going through these judgments and as we'll continue to go through these judgments to be unleashed upon the rebellion of man against God. And yet, that's not the end of the story, and that's not all of the story. And chapter 7 reminds us of that, that in the midst of such destruction, there is salvation, there is glory, there is grace, there is mercy, there is comfort. There is hope. There is the promise that God will remove all pain one day. That God will take his people who endure the hatred of the lamb in this world. And one day will give them all of the comforts and the blessing that have been purchased for them by that same Savior. And so this is a glorious picture. It's a refreshment. It's like re refreshment to our souls. It's like healing to our bones, as it were, in the midst of all of this. And John says in verse 9 here that as he looked, uh, he saw a great multitude, a large crowd, a crowd of many. He even says it is so great that it is a number that could not be counted. The first question then is where, where does this crowd come from and what is the relation of this crowd to the 144,000 that he named specifically as being the product or being called from the 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 from each of the tribes, and he lists that in detail. And now we come into this great multitude which cannot be counted from tribes, peoples, and tongues and nations standing before the throne. What is the connection? Well, we argue that these are the beginning of the outworking of God's eschatological covenant faithfulness to Israel. The promise that Israel will be saved. The promise that Israel will, in the latter days, experience not only suffering, not only turmoil and tribulation, but in that great suffering that is to come upon them, that they will experience salvation. This was the hope of the prophets. This was the anticipation of God's people for this future day. We're not going to look at all of that, and this is mostly a reminder, but let me just remind you of some of that. 
He says to his people in Ezekiel chapter 36, for example, that there is this day coming in which he will gather them. He will sprinkle clean water on them and be clean. He will give them a new heart and a new spirit. He will cause his spirit to dwell within them. That he will save and redeem his people. It is a promise that he will give life to his people who are outside of this work of God, dead. He says in verse chapter 37, verse 5, Thus behold the Lord God, uh, the Lord, the, thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you that you may come alive, and you will know that I am the Lord. Paul picks up on this idea in Romans chapter 11 where he says that right now Israel are enemies to the gospel. They are are enemies of God and his saving work of redemption. But that condition will not last forever. When the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, God will turn his attention back to Israel and thus all Israel will be saved. And in her salvation she will fulfill the mission that she was originally attended for, and that is to be a light to the nations. And so it is a testimony here then of the faithfulness of God. These are referred to, actually, this 144,000, we won't turn there, but in Revelation 14b, they're mentioned again as the first fruits of men. The first fruits of men. And so they are the first fruits then of God's covenant faithfulness to work out this promise to turn his attention again to Israel after the Gentiles have come in. And indeed, while there is salvation from among the nations and the tribes and the tongues and etc., as we continue to walk through the book of Revelation, we will see, by and large, it is the Gentile nations which are under the rule of the Antichrist and the instruments of Satan for the persecution of God's people, particularly the Jews, but all of God's people. Who will be saved during that time. And so this is also a further outworking then of the Abrahamic covenant. When he said to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that was the first point generally that we looked at. The second point is that of the vision was to notice the manifold worship of the crowd and angelic beings surrounding the throne. And the sum and the essence of this worship is of the sovereign grace of God in his sovereign work of salvation. For redeeming a people by himself, for himself, through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. His atoning death, his resurrection, his life as God the Son incarnate in the flesh. That God is the author of creation, God is the author of salvation, God is the author of redemption. That God's eternal purpose of those he elected in his son will know that salvation and none will be lost. And so here we have this great picture of those who have been called to faith in Christ in the midst of such trying circumstances and destruction and are experiencing the end of their salvation. With that glorious expression of praise, even coming from, well, their praise of the crowd in verse 10. Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is to say, salvation is from you. Salvation is to the end of your glory. And then of the angels themselves end with this praise in that first section. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might to our God forever and ever. 
And now we come in into the section part, the second part, the explanation of the salvation that is being experienced by those before the throne. And just one other note that we that I want to remind us of that we covered last time is simply to note this: while while we are experiencing this vision through John and his record of this vision, and so it's an explanation of the crowd and and, and what they're doing and so forth. Notice the attention of the crowd. So the attention of the text is looking at the crowd and what they're doing and then through the crowd looking back to God. But where is the attention of those who are in heaven? It's on God. He is the center. And that is the very essence of worship, that it is focused on God. It is God-centered. It is Christ-centered. That is the measure of all true worship. Is What is the center of it? What is the delight of the heart? What is the fixed gaze of the people of God? And it is on their Savior and on their God. That cuts through much of what we see in Christianity today. But let's note verse then again in verses 13 through 17. Then the explanation of salvation. The explanation of salvation. And this again introduces something as you notice just through reading it of a transition in this vision and and the transition to explain now what is this that John sees. And so in verse 13 he says one of the elders, one of the elders uh, said to him and, and he asked him a question. And notice here the sense of this conversation, the fact that it is one from the elders suggest, as we've already covered before in chapters 4 through 5, that these elders are not, not uh, that are, they are as angelic, not merely a symbolic representation of the church, but an angelic representation of the church that is real. These are real angels. These are an actual group of angels. And what their exact relationship to the church is, uh, where you can not be totally sure, but here they seem to represent God's people. And so here is one of these elders now who comes out from this angelic group and he asks him a question. Now what's interesting here is he asks him a question that he cannot answer. Why does he ask a question that that the apostle cannot answer? He says, who are these? These are clothed in the white robes. Who are they and where did they come from? Well, he knows John does not know. So why then does he ask him the question? And he asks the question for this reason, to accentuate, to highlight, and to put emphasis, to draw the spotlight on the answer. And this isn't an uncommon way that God communicates with people, both directly himself and through his representatives. Here an angel in the Old Testament through the prophets. You can, for example, remember when God questioned Adam after the fall. Adam and Eve fell. They became very aware of their nakedness. They tried to hide themselves from God, their shame. And what did God say to them? The Lord God called to the man and he said, Where are you? Where are you? Verse 6 of chapter 9, when he speaks to Cain, after he murdered his brother Abel, he says, Why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? Later he says, Where is Abel your brother? And then he asked him, What have you done? Now, he's not seeking information. God knows exactly what has been done. God knew exactly where Adam and Eve were. But he's trying to draw out of them confession. And he's highlighting the reality of the situation. For Adam and Eve, it was to highlight their guilt 
in sinning against God. In Cain, it was to highlight his culpability in giving in to sin and ignoring the instruction of God to do well, to not do evil. God often uses this in the prophets in a similar way, particularly in reference to visions. In Jeremiah 1.11, he says, The word of the Lord came to me, and he gave him a vision of figs and baskets and so forth. And he says, What do you see, Jeremiah? Later he says, The word of the Lord came to me a second time, and he said, What do you see? So God, who is giving the vision, is asking the prophet what he sees, and then he gives an explanation. So you see that throughout. And so it is. There's many other examples. And so here it is. The angel is asking him and saying, what does all of this mean? What does this crowd mean? What does this worship mean? Who are they and where do they come from? And he's doing so so that in giving the answer and the explanation, it could highlight the glory of God in his saving work in the midst of such destruction. And so he identifies first where they have come from. John says, my Lord, you know. In other words, I don't know. You do know. Why don't you tell me? Verse 14, and so the angel answered, and he said, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. He identifies, the elder does, of these as coming out of the great tribulation. The great tribulation. This is a specific time. This is a period of time that is identified in the uniqueness of the trouble and the suffering that it brings to the world and to God's people. It is a specific period of time that is marked off from the general tribulations that God's people experience. We are called to trouble. Trials and tribulation are a part of this world. Suffering is a part of this world for God's people. But this is something distinct. This is something unique. It is the great tribulation. This is a unique time. So what is this great tribulation? It is a unique time of unprecedented suffering that comes from the hand of God against rebellious humanity. In other words, this is not something that has yet been experienced by humankind. This is not something the world has already known This is not a general description of the troubles that have faced God's people. This is a future time, a future period that is marked by the uniqueness of the tragedy and the suffering that it brings. Now, we're familiar already with this this language. As a matter of fact, it was first used by the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospels. He talks about it in Matthew chapter 24. When he's anticipating the same week, the same period of time, he says to them as he's speaking to his people and the future destruction that is coming upon his people, and that's important to notice, he's not merely talking about a future time of destruction and tribulation that is to come upon the world in general. He is specifically answering the disciples' question. It is Jerusalem-centered. It is the nation of Israel-centered. And it is the destruction that is coming upon them in anticipation of what the Old Testament prophets said. And so he tells them in verse 15, he identifies this time as when the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, is standing in the holy place. Let the reader understand. And he talks about they must flee because of the great terrible destruction that is coming. We'll get to that in Revelation 12. 
They must get out. They must run away from the evil that is coming upon his people in those days that they can. And then he says in verse 21, And then there will be a great tribulation. Listen to what he says. How does he describe it? Such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. In other words, it is a great tribulation that exceeds the flood, that exceeds the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of Babylon, that exceeds that great and terrible suffering that God's people knew that was, is the center of the book of Lamentations, as Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, laments all of the hardship and the suffering and the destruction and the evil that had come upon the people of God because of their sin. It's greater than the Holocaust where millions of Jews were killed at the hands of an evil ruler. It's greater than the suffering of God's people throughout all of their history. It's a unique time. It has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. In fact, he says in verse 22, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So the great tribulation is a unique tribulation. It is a particular tribulation. It is a specific tribulation. It is specific suffering of God's people such that it is the only time that could be identified. There's only one time that could be identified as this period, the Great Tribulation. And it is associated specifically and particularly with the revelation of the Antichrist and the false worship that he will demand from them. So it coincides as well with the apostasy and the blasphemy of this evil one who is to come when he sets himself up in the temple of Jerusalem as God to be honored and worshipped as God. This is a day that is coming. This is the time that, that the, the, the circumstances out of which this crowd is called. We're going to spend in the future much more time on this, but let me just remind you of a few passages. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 refers to this. He says, Let no one deceive you. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as God. So what does that require? A temple. It requires a nation who, in some manner, was allowed to build this temple. It requires exactly what Daniel 9 anticipated in this final week. And again, we've looked at that briefly, but let me just remind you. In Daniel chapter 9, wrapping up God's purposes for the nation of Israel, in this final week, he says this, And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations, he will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. This is the Antichrist. Jesus said it explicitly. This is the one spoken of by Daniel. 
When this comes, there will be, when he arises, there will be great persecution. It will be a time of unique suffering. But it will also be a time of great salvation. Great salvation. These have come out of that terrible time. These, he says, are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. Who are the these? These are the ones before the throne. These are the ones who have washed their robe and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are the ones who did not consider their life precious to keep in this world, but gladly gave it up to partake of the world to come. Now, I want to note next here, just very briefly. How then did they come? How did they come before the throne? Well, he says in the second part, and I'm only going to introduce it here. We're going to take this in some detail next week. How did they come? He says, these are those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That is a precious statement. They have made them white in the blood of their Lamb and of the Lamb. Though their blood was shed on earth, their souls were redeemed to one day be united to a sinless and eternal body by him who shed his blood for their salvation. And so it is for all of us. Wicked men shed blood to harm and destroy. The eternal Son of God shed his own holy blood to save and to make whole, to cleanse and to make white, to purify a people for himself. And so this is just where we'll begin to turn our attention this morning, that the blessed reality for all who have trusted Christ is this great paradox of the gospel, his death for our life, his suffering for our salvation. What an exchange. You can't avoid suffering in this world. You can't avoid it. You can't avoid death. You can't avoid the fact that one day there will be an end. That's what Satan holds over men, is the fear of death. Oh, the fear of death that men try to escape by ignoring it, by some kind of religious experience that will be a, a, save, or salva, or not salvation, a salve to the soul, that will take away the pang of conscience, the fear of what lies ahead, the reality of eternity. But what does Scripture remind us of? He has set eternity into the heart of man. And you cannot escape that. So death comes to all, but it's only believers who have this hope. It's only believers who have this hope. And it's a glorious hope, and I, I can't wait to get to it next week. And, but again, we'll have to introduce it here. And it is a hope that is, let me just say, that is necessary that we come only through the blood of the Lamb. It is a hope that is certain. It is a hope that is glorious. It is a hope that meets the longing of our souls is to be with Christ. And I just want to say that if you don't know Christ here this morning, if you don't know Christ, you do not have this hope. You don't. You, if you don't know Christ, if you have not fled to him, if you have not run to him, then you have no savior. You have a no atonement for sin. And if there's one reminder as we go through here, it's not only the glory of what is ours for those who are trusted in Christ, but is the warning and the appeal and the plea for those who are outside of Christ to come to him, to receive his salvation. 
to be able to sing the lyrics of this one song. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, clothed then in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. That's where we want to be found, is those who sing of sovereign grace. But there's an exchange that must take place. They came out of the great tribulation, which means this, that they laid down their lives because their treasure in heaven was greater than their, any treasure of earth. Well, we as his people are going to remember this as we come now to the Lord's table. And, and we remember that Christ has gone before us and that we are the purchased and the fruit of this great and glorious grace of God. And so we come to this, and I'll pray, but let me just say this ahead of time now, that this is for the purchased. This is for believers. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you do not see the reality of his life in you, this is not for you. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who is willfully and unrepentantly walking in sin, unwilling, even though struggling to deal and battle with sin, then the table is not for you either. But for those who have trusted in Christ and those who do struggle with sin but ever look to their Savior to restore their heart, to forgive them, to help them to walk in righteousness, then this table is a gracious reminder to say salvation has been won. There is nothing that we bring we, that we offer to God other than the empty hands of faith to trust in him and his salvation. So let's pray, and then the men will hand out the elements.